Hello, my name is India Block and welcome to Words on Wood, a podcast about the big questions surrounding forests and the timber industry, which sets out to show how and why these issues matter to contemporary architecture and design. We've already covered a wide range of topics in the podcast, including a lot of the direct human threats to our forests. But nature has plenty of its own homegrown threats too, namely in the form of pests. All manner of beetles, bacteria and fungus can play havoc with trees, nibbling on their vital parts and sucking up their sap. Trees, it turns out, get sick too. My name is Ollie Stratford and as a man coming off the back of a bug myself, I can empathise. Trees are just like us, in sickness and in health. However, when trees get sick, you won't find them sneezing and shivering. Symptoms of a sick tree are a bit more subtle and considerably less snotty. Think prematurely withered leaves or peeling bark. And whereas humans can usually recover with the help of some medicine and bed rest, God bless penicillin, it is very hard to cure a sickly tree unless said sickness is caught and treated early. Understandably, we've all been a little bit distracted with our own very human pandemic for the past few years, but trees are facing their own devastating epidemics right now too. The emerald ash borer beetle has killed millions of ash trees across North America, while ash dieback is expected to kill up to 95% of the UK's ash trees. Dutch elm disease has killed off millions of elms across Northern Europe, while the olive trees of Southern Europe are currently under attack from Xylella fastidiosa, a bacteria spread by spittlebugs. Sudden oak death has been tearing through oak trees on America's west coast, and now it's reached the UK's shores, it's weirdly attacking large trees, Australia isn't safe either. The fungal pathogen myrtle rust arrived in 2010 and still threatens its eucalyptuses and tea trees today. And, spoiler alert, a lot of this is our fault. We're as culpable as those dreadful spittle bugs, albeit in a different way. Ecosystems develop their own finely tuned systems of checks and balances between parasites and their hosts. If a tree co-evolves with its so-called pests, they're unlikely to sicken and die. This is similar to what you see in animals too, and you could think of it as a bit like our own natural immunity to the illnesses we grow up with. But humans love to move stuff around the world to make money, and very often there are unwelcome guests who hitch a ride, which is where the real problem starts. Right, because Dutch elm disease isn't Dutch. It's just named after the nationality of the scientists who first identified the issue back in the 1920s. It's caused by a fungus that's spread by a beetle, and it was accidentally introduced to the UK from Canada in the 1960s. That bacteria that's killing olive trees? It's actually native to the Americas. When these symbiotic relationships are disrupted, and when species turn up in places that they haven't been before, the parasite can kill a host that hasn't evolved to live with it. It's like introducing rats or snakes to an island full of ground-nesting birds, or Dutch sailors to an island of dodos. Trees are sitting ducks for invasive species, and it's only getting more serious. Climate change is putting forests at an elevated risk from epidemics because the stress of extreme heat or waterlogging from floods makes trees more susceptible to disease. And, of course, if humans plant trees for harvesting as a monoculture, it makes it much easier for pests to spread like, uh, well, 
wildfire. So to better understand how tree disease spreads, and what, if anything, we can do about it, I contacted Dr Emma Hudgens. Now she is an expert at mapping the threat posed by insects, and she builds digital models to predict how an invasive species will spread in order to make containment plans. My name is Emma Hudgens. I am a postdoctoral fellow at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada, where I'm studying uh, models of invasive species spread, their impacts, uh, both economically and ecologically. And more recently, I've been building models to optimize management decisions. So figuring out which management action should be taken across space and time to minimize those impacts. And my work with Emerald Ash Borer started in my PhD, which I did at McGill University with Brian Leung. I have to say, the name Emerald Ash Borer doesn't strike fear into my heart. It's quite cute. I've seen photos of it too, and it's stunning, with an iridescent green carapace that certainly merits the comparison to a jewel. They're lovely little things with lovely little names, and I won't hear a word otherwise. Well, you wouldn't think that if you were an ash tree. The pretty name and appearance of the Emerald Ash Borer, or EAB to those in the forestry world, belies its ability to comprehensively devastate the trees it infests. Emerald ash borer is an Asian native insect that's a wood borer. So it has a larva that bores holes into its host trees, which are uh, several ash species and only ash species. And the larvae, uh, when they're feeding, they feed on the vascular tissue of the plant. So basically the circulation system, circulatory system of the tree. And if they feed enough, they can do what's called girdling of the tree, where they cut off the circulation of the tree at a certain point and nutrients and sap can't flow higher. And that's where you see the mortality. And emerald ash borer uh, can kill almost 99% of its host trees within the first five to 10 years. So it's a, a really impactful species of, of the species that I've done research on. It's the most impactful. Oh, well, wow. so it's eating its way through the tree until it's strangled from the inside. Yes, <laughs> suddenly the AB is not such a beauty. This is the stuff of horror movies. But presumably the Asian ash isn't quite as affected. Right. So scientists aren't sure, but we think that the Manchurian ash, which is native to China, co-evolved with the EAB and has compounds in its bark and defensive proteins that make it less attractive to the insects when they're looking to lay their eggs. But ash trees in Canada and the US, they didn't evolve with this issue, so they're really vulnerable. Uh, so it's very rare to have an invasive species that's this impactful, but there have been others in the past, uh, like Dutch elm disease is actually one of the main reasons why ash trees were planted, because in cities they were planted to replace elm trees that had all died. Another one is chestnut blight fungus. And these are all species that native trees have no evolutionary history with, so they're not used to having to deal with that predation. And it is from a climate that's not too different from the United States and Canada. So it's able to survive quite well. And because it doesn't have the, those appreciable natural predators, because again, there were no predators that co-evolved with it because it was never around before, that's able to allow it to spread. And I think also it's harder to control because it can fly 
compared to some other beetles that need humans to help it move around. It can do this combined spread from humans and uh, its own natural flight that allow it to be a little bit more difficult to control. So how did the EAB get all the way across the ocean? Because that's a long way to fly for a very small beetle. I mean, it's a long way to fly for a very large beetle, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, EABs are less than an inch big, but like most invasive species, the EAB was a stowaway. Emerald ash borer was first discovered in 2002 in the Midwestern United States, but it likely entered in the early 90s, and it was likely uh, an infested shipment of untreated lumber or wood packaging materials that it entered on. So a lot of shipping uses wood pallets, wood bracing materials, and before new legislation was put in place, this, these materials didn't have to be treated, so they could be infested with different species of insects. So this is likely how the emerald ash borer got in in the early 1990s. Ah, dastardly international import and exports. Well, that's a familiar story. We've talked a bit about biosecurity in previous episodes, such as in season one with illegal logging or with programmes like the World Forest ID from series two. It's interesting how much this comes up as an issue in this world. Right. And the trouble is, once the genie is out of the proverbial bottle, it's really hard to stuff it back in. And in the case of the EAB, the popularity of outdoor pursuits played right into its hungry mandibles. And from the US, it crossed the border into Canada through its secondary spread. And a lot of the secondary spread of emerald ash borer after its initial introduction happened through the movement of firewood uh, by people going from campground to campground. And it can also uh, fly on its own, but the speed of the spread that we've seen means that it had to be helped by humans. It wasn't just flying around, it was spreading at on the orders of tens of kilometers a year. There have been programs in Canada and the United States since then to burn local or to buy your firewood as close to where you're going to burn it as possible that have helped to mitigate the spread, but it can be really hard to make sure that everyone's complying with those regulations. And there's, it's a communication challenge to make sure that people understand what local means and it's had varying levels of success and this species continues to spread likely because people are still moving it around on wood products. When you think of the risks posed by campfires in the wood, you tend to think of forest fires, not uninvited guests pitching up to toast marshmallows and wage biological warfare. Right, and it's such a tragedy because no one is deliberately spreading diseased wood around, but the impact has been devastating. As Emma said, once a tree has EAB, it's a death sentence. 100 million trees have been lost already, which impacts the entire ecosystem. Then there are the cultural impacts. Ash is the preferred wood for that all-American sport, baseball. There's emotional impact for residents in urban areas where their city trees have to be felled due to infection or prevention. And, of course, the impact on the indigenous cultures that have coexisted with these trees for hundreds of years. But uh, one way that ash trees are being used in North America is actually in traditional ash basket weaving. Uh, by indigenous communities in the Great Lakes region primarily, so people in the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and Anishinaabe peoples, and they use black ash, which is more found in wetland areas, and it's slightly less preferred than green ash for emerald ash borer, but it is a threatened species. It's a species at risk. Um, 
in in the whole region and so it's a species that could be extinct because of emerald ash borer it could it could be extirpated from the region um, but particularly the practice of ash basket making could be lost from the ash borer infestation and i think that's one de devastating aspect that doesn't get captured in economic analyses and i've spoken to people whose uh, grandmothers have made their livelihood from ash basket weaving and also that just it's been a practice that's been passed down from generations and that's something that's being lost uh, with the impacts on ash trees that emerald ash borer has had. Well this is all incredibly depressing. At least the EAB hasn't made its way to Europe yet. Don't speak too soon. A 2021 report found that it's nudging up against the borders of the EU EAB has been found in St. Petersburg and 18 Russian provinces, and it's crossed the border into Ukraine. Oh god, that is worrying, particularly given that Europe already has enough of its own pest issues in the form of the ominously named ash dieback. The name speaks for its results, but ash dieback is a chronic fungal infection caused by the Hymenocyphus fraxineus fungus. Like the ash borer, the fungus eats away at the tree's vascular system, eventually cutting off its supply of water and nutrients. Young ash trees are the ones that are most at risk, and they can succumb within a single growing season. And ash dieback actually isn't an invasive species problem. In fact, it's a relatively new issue. The first casualties were identified in Poland in 1992, and it quickly spread to Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia, and then on to practically every country in Europe. Globalisation isn't so much the problem here, and luckily the Manchurian ash seems pretty impervious to the fungus. But for Europe, the problem is hard to understate. In natural woodlands, the death rate for ash dieback is 69%, and that can rise to as high as 85% if the trees are in plantations. Most concerning of all is the fact that, so far, no country has been successful in containing ash dieback once it gets in. Even cutting down all the trees in an affected area doesn't work, because the fungus can just live in leaf litter. Plus, cutting down unaffected trees risks killing off those that may have a natural resistance. It's a problem that, until an effective containment strategy or cure can be found, we may have to learn to live with. sense for how the UK design industry is responding to ash dieback, our producer, Evie Hall, spoke to Sheridan Coakley, the founder of SCP. As well as being very up to date with all things wood, as it's a core material for his business, Sheridan has witnessed the devastating effects of ash dieback firsthand when one of the big old trees in his garden fell victim to it. Well, it's a, it's a very gradual change from it looking like a normal ash tree with very healthy green leaves to gradually over a number of years that it has less and less leaves on it and then the branches start to kind of start to point upwards for some reason along the top of the tree um, and eventually it just will fall down. Um, I've had to take another two down um, which are, are quite close to my house um, and uh, one of them was looking, it, they start to look quite miserable, you know, the, the branches start to drop and um, but I think you could walk past them quite easily and just think oh that tree hasn't got many leaves on it this year. But if you look at it all the time, you'll, you'll, you'll realise. It, it doesn't die in a dramatic way. 
doesn't just keel over. <laughs> it will do eventually, but, but it's a very slow process. So, faced with watching the slow death of this tree, Sheridan wanted to make sure that the wood could be put to good use. The problem is, the fungal infection makes diseased ash unsuitable for commercial projects. All ash trees are probably going to get it in the UK, so eventually... Um, there are a f there, apparently there are there is there are some which are, are resistant to it, but it's a, it's inevitable that most ash trees are going to die. I've got a f quite a few ash trees, and I've been putting off the day of having to cut any down, um, just in case you know, they might revive, but they haven't. And there comes a point when you have to cut them down, whether either they're going to fall down the wrong way or you know. So I'd, I had already cut one down, and while it was lying on the ground. I thought that I could see another one we were going to have to cut down. It, you know, it occurred to me that most of this, most of wild ash trees are really only fit for either chipping or or burning because a, a, a timber yard or a timber merchant wouldn't. They're not they're not farms, so they're not straight. They're quite difficult to deal with. Felling the tree was the safest thing to do, but the inevitability of ash dieback and the lack of opportunities to use its victims for anything more than firewood irked him. Sheridan came up with an alternative. Get a bunch of designers who work with wood to come round and deal with that next ash that was going to be felled. It's always helpful if you've got contacts who are handy with tree cutting tools. Anyway, the project is called One Tree and invited each designer or studio to create something different out of its wood. So I thought, well, actually, you know, I know a lot of designers. Why don't we see, turn this into a project and see what people can make from it? Um, and it was as simple as that. We... We, on the day we cut the tree down, Sebastian Cox came down with his mobile sawmill and all the people involved, all the designers involved, um, came down and they tried to try to choose bits of wood that they wanted to use. Some, some were very specific and actually said, I want this bit of the trunk um, and I don't want it cut, I just, I'll deal with it. Or others said, I want boards of this kind of thickness. So we tr he tried to cut up as much to order um, and then we just cut the rest up um, and then seasoned it for three months and then it was then it went into a kiln to dry it and then it was given to the designers quite late actually for them to work on and um, it was it was a bit of a rush in the end but as you can see it was you know it was a very diverse range of things that came out of it. The designers involved included Wilkinson and Rivera, Faye Tugard, Oscar Coakley, Matthew Hilton, Sebastian Cox, Sarah Kay, Poppy Booth, Max Bainbridge and Mo Reddish. A good crowd, in short. And it's really cool to see all the wildly different things they came up with. Oh, have you seen the results? Yes, I was lucky enough to see the full exhibition of the One Tree Project at SCP. They put it on during London Design Festival 2022. They had them all in one room, and honestly, if you hadn't told me, I would not have guessed that only one tree was the source of so much beautiful wood. Yeah, it sounds like it was a challenging project, but I suppose any designer worth their salt wants one of those. The pleasure of the discipline is working within constraints. If you're a good designer, you should be able to deal with any, any material that's thrown at you. and it's um, So I think there is definitely life in the idea of using uh, more fallen ash trees. Evie also spoke with some of the designers that you mentioned earlier to get their perspective on the novel experience of working with diseased ashwood. Teresa, Rivera and Grant Wilkinson are the husband and wife team behind Wilkinson and Rivera, a woodworking design studio. They produce their handmade chairs, tables and stools out of their workshop in East London. 
So here's Teresa and Grant to tell us a bit more. It was a very interesting brief. Um, and then going to Sheridan's property and seeing the tree. I mean, it was quite a spectacular sight. It was a massive tree. Um, and where I guess like the rot really took, it was almost like black tar was inserted into mm. the trunk of the tree. Like it was... It really felt like disease. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was It was truly a diseased tree. Um, and it was kind of amazing because you saw the entire anatomy of the tree laid out in front of you because mm. it had already been felled. And then you could kind of see the way that the dieback had been spreading throughout different areas of the tree. Yeah. So we kind of, in principle, knew that this disease was spreading through the country, but then actually getting to see how it looked mm. and how it had affected the timber was quite eye-opening. The progress of the disease through the wood made making their design a three-seater bench with three separate seat backs a bit of a trial and error process. Uh, ash is reasonably hard and generally we use it often. It's kind of our the timber that we use for prototyping. It's like one of our staple timbers. Mm. Um, but there were definitely parts when working on this project where you would cut a leg and then all of a sudden half of it would feel quite soft. I guess this is the trouble with working with diseased wood, but also the beauty of it. You're never going to be able to mass-produce furniture from it because you just don't have that guarantee of consistency. They had to really think on their feet when it came to portioning up the raw material they'd been given. Wilkinson and Rivera explained that they had to keep the design flexible to respond to the condition of the wood because it constantly surprised them. Yeah, it means you have to be really careful in the way you're laying out your project. Mm. So when you've got your boards of timber lying in front of you and you're working out, okay, well, this piece can be a leg or this piece can be a back. It means that you're, you're placing those templates very carefully to make sure that you're always running through healthy wood. I guess there are different grades of timber and it did not feel like furniture grade timber, but there was something quite lovely in the way that it was it was moving and dictating itself or the forms that we were able to make of it that I wouldn't shy away from using ash dieback timber in the future, mm. I would say. It wasn't, um, it wasn't a bad experience or um, troubling. We didn't worry about structural integrity. It was just different. It almost felt like the way that it's supposed to be in a lot of ways. And that's an important point that Teresa made there. It's not bad or troubling, it's just different. Yes, it's probably not going to be furniture-grade timber, but that's an industry measure designed to rank wood for its consistency rather than quality. Although there were points where they were having to work around the rot. Because ash dieback kills by cutting off the tree's circulation, bits had begun to die off. It's Kind of like if a human lost the circulation to their extremities due to frostbite and necrosis sets in. Well, isn't that a delicious image? Luckily, a rotting tree smells nice and autumnal, so the one tree designers were spared any unpleasantness working with the diseased ash. They just had to perform some careful surgery. Yeah, yeah, we were going at it. I mean, the way that we were constructing the our shaping the bench, we were going at it with an angle grinder and it's already quite an intense, powerful machine. And then if it was almost like weaker bits of the wood would 
feel quite pulpy almost or would crumble like there was there was like you know we had to work around the soft bits of the boards that we got so you could definitely tell and for some of the designers the state of the dying wood itself became a point of inspiration mo reddish made a set of glass vessels that he formed using the voids that had been left behind in the tree by the rot you in some of the pieces you can actually see where the the wood is has has the, has been rotted away, and the disease has got in there and disfigured the and, and changed the colour of the uh, of, of, of the grain so a grain of wood. It's more prominent on 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 a number of pieces. The uh, I think the the uh, the pieces by Mo, which are the glass pieces where he's blown the glass inside rotten bits of the tree. You could, that's where you can see the damage that, that, that the disease can do. I mean, it completely hollows out some parts of it. In a sense, it's quite a romantic project, being able to make something new and alive out of something that is also dying and quite literally decaying. It's a hard pill to swallow, that we may never be able to save the UK's ash trees, but using them to create individual works of art that can be used and loved by people is a positive design message. You're right, there's something very moving about One Tree as a community project too. Coming together to cut up the tree is like a reverse barn raising, They deconstructed it, yes, but they also made it somehow more than the sum of its parts. It's also a very sustainable approach to working with wood. You know how, like, nose-to-tail restaurants are super trendy right now? (laughs) You're saying that Sheridan essentially made the tree-felling version of a hip Brooklyn eatery, a kind of root-to-leaf situation, if you will. Okay, so maybe that's pushing it. But there is something in there about using as much of the wood that's savable to make original pieces – It's not scalable in the sense that you could ever industrialise the process, but it could be a model that local communities could adopt when managing their own trees that have to be felled due to the disease. I was only teasing. And you're right that it's a great model for working with what is currently a very bad hand in terms of native tree species in the immediate future. When you look at the challenges presented to us as a species when it comes to climate change, it's hard to see how any individual efforts could make a dent in what needs to be a total systematic overhaul of how globalised economies work. But with these dying trees, a community of individuals coming together to share skills and knowledge and to make something out of wood otherwise destined for the chipper feels hopeful and hopefully replicable. Totally. I mean, this has been a pretty depressing episode to research in terms of learning about the sheer scale of the challenges facing native forests around the world. But One Tree gave me a lot of hope, and so too did speaking to Dr Hudgens. Not only does her modelling work allow presumptive action to be taken against EAB spread, there are some exciting pest control ideas in the works. So, to leave us on a high note, I'll let her tell us about killer wasps. (laughs) Killer wasps. Uh, This sounds worryingly like trying to fight fire with fire. Stay with me. Dr Hudgens' new modelling project is involved with mapping the best places to deploy surveillance for tree pests to help stop the spread and look for potential sites to introduce biological controls, which is a fancy term for bringing in a natural predator for the invasive species. Obviously, you have to be careful... But these kinds of ecologically informed approaches could, with judicious application, get results. And it's only a tiny bit gross. Biological control involves releasing parasitoids that are from the native range 
of the ash borer. So they're uh, wasps that lay their eggs either in the eggs or the larvae of emerald ash borer, and that kills <laughs> the species. And this is actually one of the new strategies that has been proposed for emerald ash borer. Part of my recent work has been examining the the effectiveness of that approach given that there's a lot of uncertainty compared to actually restricting the movement of wood products. And a lot of people have ethical problems with the release of parasitoids because you're releasing a non-native species to control a non-native species. For me, I see it as one tool that under certain circumstances might be the only tool that's available. And, par and biological control with these parasitic organisms is something that's been used in agriculture for a really long time but I think it's seen as more safe for agriculture because the system is more contained. Whereas if you're just releasing these wasps into forest, natural forests and cities, there's, there seems to be less of a containment of the organism. But I should say that, that there's a lot of research being done to make sure that these wasps can only attack emerald ash borer and not any other of the related species. There's obviously a small risk always of uh, evolutionary changes in the parasitoid over longer terms to for it to branch off and have other hosts, but there is a risk assessment that gets done about whether these, whether it's safe to release these wasps. Whether everyone's at the table who should be for those con conversations is, to me, debatable, um, and this is something that I'm also working on now uh, in workshops with stakeholders and rights holders uh, for forests across Canada and the U.S. This has been Words on Wood, a podcast made by Desenio in collaboration with and with support from AHEC, the American Hardwood Export Council. Your hosts have been me, Ollie Stratford, and India Block, and it has been produced and edited by Evie Hall.